0: Chapter 27 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mike Manilakis. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 27 by Thomas W. Knox. Fire, fire the life of a New York fireman, the School of Instruction, and the Life-Saving Corps. It is nearly a century since the authorities of New York organized a department whose special duty it was to extinguish fires. Before that time, the fire service, such as it was, was in the hands of the police, who had a distinct branch for the viewing and searching of chimneys, and also for the use of hooks, ladders, and buckets. Every house having two chimneys was compelled to have one bucket at the expense of the owner, and every house with more than two chimneys was required to have two buckets, while all brewers and bakers were to have six buckets each, under penalty of a fine of six shillings for every bucket wanting. From this crude beginning grew the old fire department of New York, which was a most excellent institution for the greater part of its existence. In its early days, all the best young men of the city belonged to it, and the engines were kept in or near the city hall, which was a very convenient location. That the rules were more rigid than in later times is shown by the circumstance that on the 1st of December, 1829, a member of the fire department was reported for chewing tobacco in the engine house, and two days later another member was reported for smoking a pipe. Spirituous liquors were excluded from the engine houses, but allowed at fires. In those days, the city furnished the engines and kept them in order, and it also paid the rent of the engine houses and certain other expenses connected with the service. But the work of the men was voluntary, and hence the organization was known as the Volunteer Fire Department of New York. It continued in existence until abolished by law to make way for the paid fire department about 25 years ago. The Volunteer Fire Department had become in great measure a political machine. Bad men had found their way into it and respectable men had gradually withdrawn, though many of them still clung to it out of the affection born of long years of faithful service. I am acquainted with many members of the old fire department, and appreciate the earnestness with which they talk of the days long gone by, and deprecate the evils they were powerless to control, and which gradually brought the old organization to grief. The volunteer firemen were recruited from all kinds of trades and occupations, It was an invariable rule with them to answer every fire alarm at whatever hour it was sounded, no matter what they were doing at the time. "'One time,' said an old fire laddie, Barnum the showman was giving a play called Mall Pitcher or The Battle of Monmouth at his old museum at the corner of Broadway and Ann Street. There were redcoats and continentals in uniform, and no end of Indians with feathers and war paint and tomahawks in the battle scene. And a lot of us that ran with an engine a little way down Ann Street had hired out for soups to make up the armies that went on the stage. Well, one day, just as we were all dressed in our stage costumes and it was almost time for us to march on the stage for the great battle, the fire bell rang out a signal for a fire in our district. We didn't stop for anything but went yelling down the stairs and out into the street just as we were, the most motley crowd of firemen that ever turned out at a fire. We met the engine coming up Ann Street, grabbed the rope, and went on to the fire with the rest of the boys. How the small boys did scamper out of the way, and how folks did stare at us, especially at the Indians in war paint and feathers, and the redcoats in their gay uniforms. But we kept at our work and put out the fire, and then went back to the museum, though by that time the play was over. Barnum was awful mad at first, as his battle scene was all broken up, But next morning, the story was in the papers, and he got such a good advertisement out of the affair for nothing that he was all serene again by the time of the afternoon performance. The old firemen were extremely fond of their life. They received no compensation, whatever, beyond exemption from militia and jury duty, and they often paid out of their own pockets for decorating their engines and also for painting and repairing them. And these items were frequently very heavy. One company had its engine silver-plated at a cost of $2,000, and other companies soon followed its example. Pictures of various kinds, generally fire scenes or allegorical subjects, were painted on the panels of the engines or wherever there was sufficient surface on which to make a picture, and some of these paintings were really valuable works of art. The colors of the engines were usually gaudy, red having preference. And there is a story extant about a fireman who declared that he didn't care what color the committee painted the engine as long as they painted her red. The fireman always spoke of the engine as feminine, and she was beloved almost as much as were their sweethearts and wives. The principal element that tended to the demoralization and ruin of the old volunteer fire department was the Bowery rough or Tough, also known as the Bowery Bahoy. He was a curious product of the times in which he lived, and he disappeared when the old fire department went out of existence. He invariably had his trousers tucked into his boots. He wore a red shirt, no vest or waistcoat, and carried his coat on his arm, rarely on his back, and then only when forced by the weather. His stovepipe hat was cocked over one ear as far as it could possibly go and remain on his head and he generally held in his mouth a cigar at an angle of about 40 degrees towards the sky. His hair was liberally oiled and brought well in front of his ears. His peculiar style of hairdressing gave him the name of Soaplocks, though it would have been injudicious to apply this term to him in his hearing. He had no occupation and no visible means of support except to run with machine, though he sometimes consented to work in a shipyard, boiler factory, or other establishment along the East River or in the vicinity of the Bowery. He had a way of walking into a restaurant, bar room, cigar shop, or other establishment that dealt in supplies which he desired, and after receiving what he wanted, he would deliberately walk out without paying. If the proprietor ventured to hint that he desired to pay for his goods, the Bahoy dropped his coat struck a pugilistic attitude, and with a drawl and intonation impossible to render in print, announced in no-choice language that the man would be paid by a thrashing. The threat usually brought silence, but if it did not, the boy was as good as his word. About the only thing he was ever good for was to redeem a promise to thrash whoever demanded from him his just dues. He would have his boots polished by a bootblack, and when the job was finished, the boy's box would be kicked halfway across the street, and while the urchin ran to pick it up, the scoundrel would walk leisurely away without deigning to pay the boot black's fee. What wonder it is that with such men in the fire department, there was a great deal of rioting and thieving at fires. Stores in the neighborhood were stripped of their contents if they were such as the thieves could use, and the special delight of the Bowery Bohoy was a fire in or near a clothing store. Thereby hangs a bit of history. While a bill for the abolition of the Volunteer Fire Department was before the State Assembly, with some doubt about its passage, a fire broke out in a large clothing store. During the conflagration, several firemen were killed by falling walls. When their corpses were taken from the ruins, some of them were found to have on overcoats from which the dealers' tickets inside the collars had not been removed. This circumstance at once secured the passage of the bill through the legislature, as it sustained one of the charges that had been made against the old organization. The fireman of today is no longer a volunteer. He is paid just like a policeman or any other official, and if disabled, he is retired on a pension which is guaranteed to him for the rest of his life, varying from one-third to one-half of his pay. The present headquarters building cost $100,000, is six stories high, and has in its rear an enclosed yard 50 by 100 feet which is used as a practicing ground in connection with the school of instruction and life-saving corps for the training of officers and men. Altogether there are nearly 1,400 men and 400 horses employed in the entire department and the total expenses are nearly two and a half million dollars annually. The valuable experience acquired by the men in the drill yard of the school of instruction cannot be overestimated. Here, members of the force are thoroughly instructed in the handling and use of life-saving appliances, implements, etc. The practice ground connected with a school where daily drills take place enables the entire force to obtain the familiarity and knowledge of recent improvements in apparatus, implements, tools, ladders, and life-saving appliances, which are continually being added to the equipment of the department. The erection within the past few years of very high buildings has necessitated the introduction of special life-saving appliances, chief among which is the scaling ladder. This ladder is a long pole with short rungs projecting on both sides and terminating at the upper end in a steel hook. Any height can be reached by a skilled fireman with a scaling ladder, provided there are windows or other openings into which its hook can be inserted whereas the longest practicable extension ladder so far constructed falls short of 90 feet. About 15% of the buildings in New York are so high that their upper windows cannot be reached by the longest extension ladder now in use. The value of the scaling ladder was well illustrated by an incident that happened at a recent fire in an apartment house. The elevator boy was discovered at one of the 7th story windows, calling loudly for help the fire having extended so rapidly as to make it impossible for him to come down the stairways. The commander of a hook-and-ladder company ordered his men to rescue the imperiled boy, and three of the men at once proceeded to do so. While they were ascending from story to story by means of scaling ladders, the long extension ladder of the company was raised to its full height, but it only reached to the sill of the six-story windows. In the meantime, one of the firemen had reached the fifth story by means of the scaling ladder, and from thence he stepped to the extension ladder, carrying his scaling ladder with him, which he then hooked into a window of the seventh story, and ascending, found the boy in an exhausted and excited condition. He reassured and quieted him, and although the task of passing him down to his comrades below was one requiring great strength, it was safely accomplished, and the boy at last reached the ground. Indispensable parts of the equipment of every lifesaver are the broad waist belt with snap hook attached, by means of which, standing up upon the rungs of the scaling ladder, he can securely fasten himself to it and freely use both hands, and the lifeline with which he can safely lower persons, or himself, from any elevation to the ground. Nearly all the members of the fire extinguishing force are now skilled in the use of these appliances the only exceptions being those who were too old for that class of service at the time of its introduction. The jumping net and the lifeline gun, both of which are for use only as a last resort, are often the means of saving life. The net is circular in form, made of rope, and is intended to be held by firemen to catch persons jumping from buildings. Quite recently during a fire in a five-story building, the lives of two brothers and a sister were saved by its use. A fireman took a scaling ladder, with which he was enabled to reach the fourth floor, and then, placing it in a window of the fifth floor, he succeeded in getting the brothers down to the fourth floor. At this time, flames burst out from all the windows of the third floor and prevented further descent by the ladder. In the meantime, the hook-and-ladder company had arrived, but as it was impossible to make use of its extension ladder in time, the life-saving net was resorted to, being held by the few available Firemen aided by a number of citizens. After the sister, who had been compelled to remain on the fifth floor, and her brothers on the fourth floor, had, under the fireman's direction, successfully jumped and been safely caught in the net, the fireman also jumped, and although caught in the net, he unfortunately bounded out of it and fell upon the pavement, sustaining severe injuries. There can be no doubt that the lives of all four would have been lost but for the prompt use of the life saving net. The lifeline gun, or carbine, throws a projectile to which a cord is attached, with which the endangered person can haul up the stout lifeline tied to it. The general effect upon the firemen of a system of training at the school of instruction has unquestionably been to better fit them for the performance of their ordinary duties and to qualify them to meet almost any emergency. One of the prerequisites to admission in the force is a probationary service of one month largely devoted to drill in the school of the life-saving Corps, A few of the recruits take to it quickly and naturally. The majority, however, acquire proficiency gradually, while only a very small proportion are found disqualified. By degrees, the recruits are made to scale story after story, to use the lifeline, to man the jumping net while a dummy is thrown from a fifth or 6th story window, to take the part of the rescued and of the rescuer, until the end of the probationary period finds him either a qualified lifesaver, or he is dropped from the rolls. If the first, he is thereupon permanently appointed, provided the service he has also been required to perform in a company has been found acceptable. The horses used in the department are large, handsome creatures, selected with great care, and their training is as carefully looked after as that of the men who have them in charge. The hospital and training school is in an appropriate building erected for the purpose, in the upper part of the city. Here is a large room on the ground floor, fitted up like the apparatus floor of an engine house, with engine stalls, hanging harness, telegraph signal gong, sliding poles, etc., and new horses are thoroughly educated in their duties before they are distributed to the engine houses. These horses are all fresh from the country, from four and a half to six years old, and of course entirely untutored. The first step in the instruction, and generally the most difficult one, is to accustom the horse to getting under and into the harness and hinged collar. To accomplish this, it is often necessary to have one of the men precede the animal and place his own head in the collar. When the horse's natural dread has been allayed in this manner, he is next harnessed and hitched up at the sound of the signal on the gong. This he must learn to do quickly and without the least hesitation and to teach it properly requires great tact and experience on the part of the trainers. At the first stroke of the gong, the horse is led and guided to his place under the harness by one man and driven from behind by another, whose voice and hand, if necessary, both urge him forward. The collar is pulled down and snapped around his neck, the harness is let down upon him, the reins are snapped, and the wide street doors slide open. This is repeated as often as may be found necessary. Great care being taken to handle the animal as gently as practicable and to avoid making him timid or injuring him in any way. The final instruction consists in driving the horse out of the stable as if responding to an actual alarm. Occasionally a horse is found deficient in intelligence or too nervous, but more frequently they develop physical faults. In either case, the horse is at once returned to the dealer who supplied it on trial. There is, however, another test to which a horse who proves satisfactory at the training stable is subjected before his final acceptance into the service. This is the test of actual service in the company for which he was selected, and failing in this, he is also rejected. The average length of service for horses in the department is about six years. As it is of the first importance that the horses are always in prime condition, they are sold as soon as it becomes evident that their usefulness in the service is waning. Accommodations are provided in the building for both the sick and injured horses. Commodious stalls of both the ordinary and box pattern, properly lighted and well-ventilated, together with the best modern appliances and medical supplies to ensure the best treatment, are furnished. At each engine house, there is a comfortable sitting room for the men, usually adjoining the dormitory, and frequently the furniture includes a billiard table, chess boards, dominoes, and other materials for amusement, Some of the houses have good-sized libraries which have been presented by friends. Political and religious discussions are forbidden, and profane language is not allowed under any circumstances. Disputes among the men are rare. When they approach the nature of a quarrel, they are referred to the foreman, and if he is unable to arbitrate successfully, the dispute is referred to a higher official. Drunkenness is forbidden, the first offense being punished with a reprimand and fine, while a second one is pretty sure to secure the discharge of the offender. The life of a fireman is not an ideal one, especially for a married man. He must be on duty night and day, accepting necessary time for his meals. He is allowed one day in every ten for a holiday, and he has a short annual vacation. The family of a fireman has very little opportunity to become acquainted with him, but his wife can console herself with the reflection that she knows where her husband is when he is not in her sight. The engine room on the ground floor is always the nearest room to the street. On either side of the engine are stalls for the horses that draw the engine and hose cart, two for the former and generally two for the latter. Let us drop around tonight and make a visit to one of the engine houses. As we enter the building, the first object to catch our eyes is the engine, a shining mass of steel, iron, and nickel plating, the perfection of mechanical skill and ingenuity, and requiring the utmost care and labor to keep it in such superb condition. When it comes back from a fire, smoke and dirt begrimed and covered with mud, it is immediately put in perfect order again, no matter at what hour of the day or night it returns, or how tired the men may be. Who knows how soon it may have to go out again? The furnace of the engine is filled with fuel ready for lighting, and a kerosene torch is at hand for flashing it into a blaze in a moment. We hear the water gently bubbling within the boiler, and a glance at the steam gauge shows that a low head of steam is on, although there is no fire in the engine's furnace nor any visible means for heating the water. Closer investigation reveals a pipe coming up through the floor. It is so hot you cannot bear your hand on it. It brings steam from a boiler in the basement and keeps the water in the engine boiling hot and steam up at a low pressure. The couplings connecting this pipe with the engine are so arranged that they detach automatically when the engine is drawn away from them, and as the pipes are separated, each of them closes securely by a very simple contrivance. The engine makes steam very rapidly, and in five minutes or less from the time the fire is lighted, the pressure is sufficient for throwing a powerful stream of water. Everything is automatic that can be made so. The halters of the horses are so arranged that they become free by means of an electrical apparatus. The harness is suspended directly over each horse's place in front of the engine and is automatically dropped on their backs. Each horse knows his place perfectly well at the engine and rushes to it the moment an alarm is given, before a hand can be laid upon him. And the same is the case with the horses that draw the hose cart. The hats and coats of the men are on the seats they occupy when the engine starts on its run. The men often don their coats and hats while riding at full speed through the streets, or as they spring into their places just as the engine starts. The firemen sleep on the floor above the engine room. It is long past midnight. Silently we enter the dormitory and look around. The beds are occupied by the men, and no sound but their heavy breathing, telling of deep slumber, falls upon the ear. Occasionally, the sound of footsteps of some belated pedestrian on the pavement below, or the distant rumble of an elevated train, floats through the half open window and breaks the stillness of the night. Near each bed is a pair of trousers, with the ends of the legs carefully tucked into a pair of boots, and evidently very precisely arranged, and each pair of trousers and boots is placed relatively in exactly the same spot at the foot of each bed. This careful arrangement saves to the fireman a small fraction of a second of time in traveling from the head to the foot of the bed, which he must pass on his way to the hole in the floor where he slides down a polished brass pole to the engine room below. The hole is closed by trap doors opening from the ceiling downward, which fly open automatically the instant an alarm is given. Stairs are altogether too slow when it is a matter of getting to a fire in the shortest possible time. The fireman jumps at the hole in the floor, throws his arms and legs around the pole, and slides with lightning rapidity to the floor below in a tenth of the time it would take him to descend the stairs. He uses the stairs on ordinary occasions, but never when responding to an alarm. A glance around the room in the dim light of the single gas jet shows that all is scrupulously neat and in perfect order. Pictures of fire scenes adorn the walls, and trophies of days gone by are placed in conspicuous places. Suddenly, without an instant's warning, and with startling distinctness, the gong rings out an alarm of fire with quick and imperative strokes. The bedclothes fly off as though lifted automatically by hidden apparatus, and the men spring from their beds and into their boots and trousers. About two pulls at the garments, and the thing is done. They fit closely around the waist, and there is no need of suspenders. Springing to the hole in the floor, they slide down the pole one after the other, swift as a flash, sometimes two men clasping it and sliding down together. We won't venture to follow that way, so we hurriedly take to the stairs and jump down two or three steps at a time. Fast as we go, the men are there ahead of us. The horses have rushed out from their stalls the harness has dropped on their backs from its fastenings above, the last snap that completes the hitching up has been made, and the animals stand in their places trembling with excitement, but perfectly obedient and waiting the word of command. The driver is in his seat, engineer and stoker, and every other man is in his place, and silence reigns for an instant, but the doors are not opened. Why is this? The several strokes that we heard on the gong were to hitch up, but another signal number indicating whether the company is to respond or not has not been given. If the signal is given, the doors open and the engine and hose cart gallop out at lightning speed to the point indicated by it. Whenever a notice is given that a fire is broken out, the alarm is sounded from the headquarters building to every engine house in the city, and every company is ready for work in a few seconds. But unless the alarm code require it, they do not go out. If a fire is trifling, one engine may be sufficient to extinguish it. If the companies first summoned are not enough, others are summoned, and the signals may be increased until they reach three sixes, which calls, according to its character, from five to sixteen companies to the scene of the conflagration. Only a fire that has attained alarming proportions will justify sending out this call, as it leaves a considerable portion of the city without protection. While we are lost in wonder and admiration at the sudden transformation that has just taken place before our eyes, another signal is given on the gong, and the big street doors, almost as wide as the building, swing swiftly apart. The horses dash out at full gallop, and the engine sways to and fro and rocks from side to side like a baby carriage rather than like a mass of metal weighing approximately four tons. Cobblestones, Belgian pavement, asphalt, all is the same to the steeds, literally fiery ones, and the engine goes at almost railway speed, its track marked by a line of glowing cinders from its furnace. Smoke and sparks pour from the chimney, the steam hisses at the safety valve, and everything is in readiness for work before the scene of the fire is reached. The hose is rapidly reeled off from the hose cart that follows close behind, and is coupled to a hydrant. The engine begins its quick throbbing, and immediately a well-directed stream of water is pouring on the fire. From the time the first alarm sounded, when every man was asleep in bed, until the engine was ready with men and horses in place, just 24 seconds have passed. Four seconds later, the second alarm came, the doors swung open, and the engine dashed into the street. It took four minutes and nine seconds more to get to the fire, which was a considerable distance from the engine house, Run a line of hose and attach it to the hydrant and start the stream on the fire. Instances are on record of an engine getting a stream of water on a fire four blocks from the engine house in less than two minutes after the alarm was given. A day hitch has been made and the engine started on its run to a fire in seven seconds after the alarm was given. A foreman would feel himself disgraced if his engine was more than half a minute in getting outside the doors of the engine house at any hour of the day or night, with all hands sound asleep in their beds when the gong called them to duty. In addition to the steam fire engine companies, there are separate organizations known as hook-and-ladder companies, water towers, etc., all of them acting in conjunction with the rest of the force. Some of these ladder trucks are about 50 feet long and very narrow, carrying an assortment of a dozen or 15 ladders, varying from 30 to 90 feet in length. They are used in saving life and for carrying hose to upper stories of burning buildings. Each truck is amply provided with scaling ladders, lifelines, jumping nets, ropes, etc., and plenty of hooks, axes, and rams for tearing down walls and partitions, and to meet almost any contingency that may arise. It is a thrilling sight to watch one of these hook-and-ladder companies on its way to a fire. The horses, three abreast, are driven at full speed, and the huge truck with its crew of men on top of the pile of ladders seems certain to topple over, especially as it rounds a corner without for a moment slackening its speed. But it is skillfully guided by a helmsman at the rear, who by means of a brake and steering apparatus keeps perfect control of the truck. The waterfront and shipping are protected by swift fireboats stationed in the east and north rivers, manned by highly trained crews who live on board. Their furnace fires are always banked, and sufficient steam is kept up to enable them to respond instantly to a call. Their engines and pumping machinery are of the most powerful kind, enabling them to throw 12 ordinary streams of water at once. A new fireboat recently launched is about 125 feet long, built of steel throughout with bulkheads and frames so arranged as to give the hull great stiffness, to enable it to withstand the vibrations caused by its powerful machinery. The pilot house is protected by iron shutters with peepholes in them, and movable screens made of two sheets of metal, with an air space between, are arranged to travel along the rail of the vessel, thus affording adequate protection to the pilot and firemen from the heat of a great conflagration and enabling them to fight fire at very close quarters. The vessel is steered by steam, and the rudder can be thrown hard over in eight seconds, thus enabling the pilot to thread his way through the most crooked channels and dodge lubberly pilots of other vessels and the numerous craft that constantly ply the harbor. Her pumping capacity is enormous. A stream five inches in diameter can be thrown from one nozzle beside stream's four inches in diameter from three others at the same time. If the power of all the pumps is concentrated on the five-inch nozzle alone, a stream of solid water five inches in diameter can be thrown to a distance of 500 feet on a level. The efficiency of the fire department depends quite as much upon the effectiveness of the electric service by which the men and engines are called as upon the alacrity with which they respond. The central office of the Fire Alarm Telegraph is on the 6th floor of the Headquarters building, and the electric signal wires, making a total circuit of nearly 1,200 miles, run to and from it in every direction and from all over the city. At many of the street corners are electric fire alarm boxes, painted red, on red lamp posts, surmounted with a red lantern that is lighted at night. There are nearly 1,200 of these electric fire alarm boxes distributed throughout the city, Most of them are accessible to the public at any hour of the day or night, while others are special boxes in hospitals, theaters, manufactories, etc. Anybody can ring a fire signal and summon the engines. It was believed at first that this system would be very unsafe and cause no end of trouble by inciting mischievous men and boys to sound false alarms. To overcome this, the inventor of the system arranged the box so that in order to open the door, a handle must be turned several times. The instant the hand is moved, a gong begins ringing at the box, and keeps ringing very loudly for 20 seconds. Then the door opens and reveals a hook which must be pulled down to give the alarm. Now, no matter how much a man or boy may be bent upon mischief, he is not willing to stand for 20 seconds in front of a box while the loud gong is ringing, and a light reveals his features to everyone whose attention would certainly be attracted by the noise. The scheme works perfectly. Nobody tampers with a fire alarm, nor is likely to when he remembers that he is liable to spend several months in prison in return for his fun. The signal box is placed so high on the post that the ordinary small boy cannot reach it to turn the handle. The instant the hook is pulled, the number of the alarm box is announced at the central office at headquarters where several operators are on duty night and day, and is by them transmitted to the various engine houses. Everything is done in the operating room in a quiet way without the least confusion, and before the person who has sent the alarm has closed the door of the signal box, his call has been received at headquarters and from thence transmitted to every engine house in the city. The fireman's life is attended by constant peril. Most of the fires that occur are taken in hand so promptly that they do not get much headway, but occasionally there is a conflagration which causes widespread destruction and more or less danger to the firemen engaged in subduing it. There is danger from falling walls and roofs, danger of suffocation by smoke and by fumes from chemicals, danger of being surrounded by flames so that escape is impossible, danger of falling into scuttle holes on floors and in roofs, and other dangers which cannot be enumerated at the moment. The men perform their work cheerfully and pay so little heed to their surroundings that it is a wonder that so few of them suffer injury or death. The greatest zeal of the fireman is shown in his efforts to save life, and the records of the department are full of thrilling incidents. On one occasion, a woman was seen hanging out of a third-story window. A fireman climbed up a post to the top of the awning and, standing on the sash of a second-story window, held on to the window blinds. At his direction, the woman dropped into his arms and was taken in safety to the street. During a fire in a tenement house on Baxter Street, a mother and her three children were rescued from the burning building by the intrepidity of a fireman, who climbed up a post to the top of the wooden roof built over the sidewalk, entered the second story therefrom, and groped his way, guided by faint cries, through the dense smoke. He found the frightened woman and two of her children crouched in a corner of a back room and carried them one by one over the blazing roof to the ladder which had, in the meantime, been raised. The youngest child still remained in the building. The brave fireman, undeterred by fire and smoke, again entered it and, finding the little one, carried it safely to the street. The experienced fireman, bravely and without the slightest hesitation, penetrates burning buildings where tongues of flame hiss around him, where fragments of falling timber are dropping about him and threatening death in a dreadful form, and where at any moment the whole structure may go down in a crash from which he cannot escape by any human aid. On the records of the department are many stories of the heroism of firemen under such circumstances. Some of them record the death of firemen who bravely sought to save the lives of others and so lost their own. A record is kept at headquarters of all deeds of heroism performed by the men, and they would fill a volume. In 1869, James Gordon Bennett, the founder of the New York Herald, sent a check for $1,500 for a Medal of Honor to be awarded to the most meritorious member of the department every year. The commissioners spent $500 for a design and die for the medal, and the remainder was put at interest, yielding a sufficient amount annually to pay for the medal. At the end of each year, the commissioners select the recipient of the medal from the roll of merit, and the presentation is made a public ceremony at which the mayor and other officials are present. It is needless to say that every fireman in the service of the city hopes to win the medal before his term of service is ended, and whoever obtains it regards it with as much pride as the soldier of the British Army regards the Victoria Cross that he has won by personal bravery on the battlefield. In 1867, John Stevenson presented the department with $250 to be used in the discretion of the board for the benefit of the department. By careful investment, this sum has been steadily increased until now it amounts to $600. For the purpose of inciting the company commanders to the attainment of the highest standard of discipline and efficiency, the commissioners determined to annually present to the captain who shall be judged the most deserving a handsome gold medal to be known as the Stevenson Medal. This presentation is also public, and is made immediately after the presentation of the Bennett Medal. End of chapter 27